Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten. Today, I'm thrilled to have Dr. Anka Vujanovic with us. Anka is an associate professor and director of the Trauma and Stress Studies Center at the University of Houston. She is also the director of the University of Houston First Responder Program. Her work on the psychological effects of firefighting and care for firefighters is the subject of our podcast today. And she was awarded the National Register's 2019 Judy E. Hall Early Career Psychologist Award. Anka, thank you for being with us today and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as as we were talking before the show started, you know, this is a subject in an area where I'm really, really eager to learn more. And I think many of us as providers are too. The topic of firefighting and firefighters in general has never been more uh, apparent than today in many ways. You know, personally, last year, um, I, I live in the West Coast. And last year, we had some of the worst air, some of the bleakest, most Martian skies the landscape was just all red and smoke, even walking outside with a mask on because we're living through COVID, right? You know, with a mask on, it still felt like we were choking through it. It was awful. And at the same point, at the center of so many of these blazes across the West Coast, and, and not often, uh, not highlighted enough in many ways, were these men, women, and people fighting to save us and to, to help us. And, and these first responders who fought and fought to try and put out these massive fires and their sacrifices, their heroism, and the consequences they deal with as a result are I think vital for us to know about as health service psychologists. I'm thrilled to have you here Anka to, to be able to illuminate this area of research and and think about what it means for our clinical practice. You know, specifically, uh, I'm curious what the role of firefighting includes. You know, I, I, you know, talking, talking to me, I I know so little and I'm, I'm learn, I'm eager to learn more. You know, some seem to function as EMS, some as paramedics, and some have this like public health prevention role and others as educators. And so what does a day in the life of a firefighter look like? That's a really great question. Um, And you're absolutely right. There's a lot of diversity in terms of what a firefighter might do on a typical day. Um, By way of introduction, there are over 1 million career and volunteer firefighters registered in the U.S. across more than 27,000 fire departments. Wow. And much of what a day in the life of a firefighter looks like depends on the context, where that firefighter is located and what their duties entail. So a lot of that context depends on geographical location, shift times, you know, day versus night and local area conditions. Some firefighters are volunteers, some are in career paid positions while others are in combination positions. Some are also EMS. Uh, or paramedics, while others are focused on fire suppression only. 
Um, many of our firefighters hold multiple jobs and many have long commutes to and from work. Most operate on shift schedules and that might mean different things for different departments. I've heard the 24 hour on, 24 hour off schedule is common, especially in career departments. And that means the firefighter is on and at the station for 24 hour increments of time and they eat and sleep with their units. They basically live at their designated wow. station. And firefighters in busy urban stations may also function as EMS or um, paramedics and may have very little downtime during their shifts as a result. They may be working in uh, very densely populated areas and getting really fairly consistent calls during a shift. Firefighters in suburban or rural areas may have quieter shifts. Um, and then, as you mentioned, firefighters living in certain areas of the country might be working through natural disasters at much higher rates like wildfires, floods, hurricanes, and others may be responding more to accidents, community violence, medical injuries, and other potentially traumatic events. So yes, a lot of diversity within the fire culture in terms of job duties and, and daily schedules. Right, right. And, and even in your answer, Anka, I'm, I'm curious to know more about what that means when you say there's some folks that, that are volunteers, there are some that seem like they're kind of quasi-employee volunteers, and then there are some that are staff, they're, they're firefighting staff that are they're hired and full-time perhaps. Um, so tell me a little bit about what those distinctions look like or what that means. Well, I think, um, you know, when when we look at, you know, nationally, uh, the firefighters across the U.S., um, you know, there are more volunteer firefighters and career paid uh, firefighters, and the career firefighters tend to be in the urban areas. Um, and, you know, that may mean a lot of things. That may mean, um, you know, if you're a volunteer, you may work with different people shift to shift. You may work um, more inconsistent shifts. And, all the time that you're devoting to that job, you're devoting, you know, of your own accord. And in other words, you may not have benefits like health insurance associated with that work. Um, whereas the, the more career paid firefighters obviously have some sort of, you know, health benefits package and, and more consistent schedules, probably more consistent, um, you know, more consistent station presence, and maybe they're working with colleagues shift to shift on, on relatively similar schedules. So they may have more of a chance to build camaraderie in uh, the, the more career-based uh, departments. But from a mental health standpoint, we know that volunteer firefighters compared to career firefighters actually are reporting more mental health um, symptomatology, and we're not really sure why that might be. I think there are some, um, you know, hypotheses out there around some of the things I just said, like camaraderie, you know, health insurance, maybe more financial stress, um, you know, but, but that's an important question for right. our field to explore further. Right, right. And you, you mentioned that, that word a couple times, camaraderie. And it does make me think about your article, which we'll talk a little bit more uh, in the podcast as we, we go along, but you have an article in the Journal of Health Service Psychology on this very subject. And in that article, you talk about the concept of fire culture. And my guess is many listeners have never been a part of this community, maybe even not adjacent, you know, not even next to it or, or been that close to, 
to what that might mean. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what those words like camaraderie mean and, and, and that fire culture you speak of. Well, the vast majority of firefighters identify as male and the majority identify as white. Nationally, um, only about 8% of firefighters identify as female and much fewer identify with other gender identities. So we don't, we don't have consistent representative data on that. But the culture, fire culture, is marked by physical strength, you know, rationality, hardiness, self-reliance, strong sense of teamwork, camaraderie, um, heroism, strength, toughness. Um, and, you know, given shift work, firefighters are essentially living with their fellow firefighters at their stations for extended chunks of time. And so you know, the level of connection they feel with their fellow firefighters is an important protective factor against the stress or sleep disruption that firefighters might experience on the job. So um, most firefighters regard their stations and their colleagues as, as their extended family. Right. Um, conflict resolution and building social support within departments and stations is a really important way to build resilience. And you know, being a firefighter, serving the community, being strong and resilient uh, may become a large part of a firefighter's identity. Many firefighters I've talked to regard their work as a calling, as an identity mm -hmm. that goes beyond just, you know, a, a career or a volunteer position. Um, and generally, uh, you know, displays or discussions of emotion within that context, within that culture are rare and may be considered by many still to be indicative of weakness. So the fire culture is still rooted in traditional masculinity norms. And, um, you know, that can contribute to mental health concerns in a subset of firefighters who may feel ashamed uh, by psychological symptoms or who may fear discrimination should their emotional struggles be known. Um, because emotional expression is often not rewarded um, and can feel stigmatizing to firefighters individually. Right, right. So we're talking about a culture that that has what sounds like a lot of strengths. You know, I, I can see how that that idea of teamwork can, can can come in handy when fighting a fire. Like we need to be able to work together. But I'm also hearing you say that there can be some consequences to some of the other parts of it. And on top of it, what I also hear you talking about is that this is a highly male identified and dominant workforce of firefighters. And, and you've previously written about how, you know, there are few women identified or LGBTQ identified firefighters. And I'm, I'm curious um, to learn a little bit more about the unique challenges and barriers that they might see for themselves. And what might be important for us to look out for as health service psychologists? That's such an important issue. And women and firefighters who identify as LGBTQIA may face discrimination, sexual harassment, uh, increased occupational stress as a result of the male-centric policies in some departments. So some still have unisex restrooms or showers, for example. Um, Generally, firefighters who identify as members of historically underrepresented populations in the fire service may face microaggressions or discrimination, direct or indirect, explicit or implicit, 
uh, they may exacerbate the stress of the job. And truthfully, we just don't have a solid understanding of the behavioral health of women mm-hmm. or individuals um, from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds in the fire service. And we have not fully understood racial or ethnic differences in behavioral health across the fire service either. And these are all very important next steps for research in this population. How do we do that? You know, something that I'm, I'm imagining when we talk about fire culture, even is that there is this kind of banding together and that I'm imagining that makes it, it hard to, to just kind of walk in there and be like, we want to study these, these tough subjects in these tough areas. So how do we do that? How do we get there? You know, th- that's so important. And I, I consider it a privilege to work with firefighters and to be entrusted, uh, entrusted with ongoing community partnerships with so many amazing departments. And, you know, it, it really is about that community partnership building. You're right. You know, I don't, I don't think um, anyone would successfully be able to walk in uh, to a department or, or email or call a department out of the blue and say, Hey, I want to come in and study you. Right. Um, right. These, these are, these are partnerships that are built um, over time. Uh, the trust is built over time, mutual trust and, you know, mutual benefit. So for example, um, we make very clear that, you know, all of the data is housed at our university. It's confidential. It's not accessible by the department. Uh, we have presented them with, um, you know, uh, kind of summaries of data once studies are done, data summaries for the departments uh, in lay language, like I'm talking like a paragraph, uh, to summarize what we've taken away, um, some of the take-home points, and the departments we've worked with have asked us to further protect, you know, confidentiality of their firefighters by, you know, not identifying the department in, in any published work. Um, and obviously, you know, keeping the, the data stored and away from anyone in the department. So it's really like we're doing research, we're sharing what um, we think is important back with the department and we keep it clinically relevant and policy relevant. Uh, they, they really are interested in ways that they can improve their mm-hmm. policy at the department level, at the state level, uh, to improve behavioral health. I think, you know, there isn't a department I've talked to nationally that is not um, invested and increasingly aware of the importance of the behavioral health of their firefighters. And so they're really interested in how, you know, if they get behind a, a research study, how that study is going to inform the behavioral health of their firefighters at the policy level. What can they do at the policy level? Um, and so that, that's been a really helpful aspect of the community partnerships that we've mm-hmm. built and then sustained over time. Um, yeah, yeah, I hear this, like the importance of, of building trust and that, that community partnership, the privacy, the confidentiality, like respecting individuals. But I also am, am appreciating the importance of translational science of like taking all of this jargon and distilling it down to an actionable item. As you were talking there, it made me think about, or I really was actually finding myself curious about the behavioral consequences we're learning of this work. You know, in many ways we ask them to do superhuman tasks. 
you know, running into burning buildings, responding to life and death medical emergencies in, in cities, you know, tackling some of the worst areas of the climate crisis in many ways. This is a lot of stress. I can't imagine. And so I, I'm curious what you've found in terms of behavioral health consequences. You know, it's so great to have this opportunity to highlight this work as this issue's been receiving more attention only recently. This is a very understudied population historically. Um, but first, it's important to note that the vast majority of firefighters are resilient. So as you said, they're running into the burning building while everyone else is running out. They're often there in the worst days of their fellow community members' lives. They are resilient. And with that kind of resilience, sometimes comes a vulnerability. And we've learned through a growing body of research now um, that sleep disturbance, post-traumatic stress, depression, or anxiety, uh, and alcohol misuse or alcohol use disorder are common behavioral health symptoms or problems among firefighters. Uh, family or marital problems, relationship problems are also common and maybe the initial presenting complaint for psychotherapy services if the firefighter were to, were to seek treatment. And, you know, firefighters have been compared to military populations and, and both are certainly high risk occupational groups, but while military service members make, you know, adjustments, reintegrations between deployment, back to civilian life, and back to deployment, firefighters make you know, related uh, similar adjustments between work and home much more frequently, sometimes right. several times per week. And we still don't fully understand the impact of that regular transition on behavioral health and family life and relationships, especially given that, you know, sometimes moderate to severe, to severe stress and gruesome circumstances that these firefighters endure during their shifts, when they transition home, they in essence need to kind of find some way to try to turn that off and reintegrate with family members who may have no idea, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what they, what they go through. Um, and, you know, it's also important to note that in the fire service, uh, deaths by suicide are, have been found to be more prevalent than, than work-related injury deaths and wow. suicidal ideation and behavior is up to, two to three times higher in the fire service compared to the general population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you highlighting that, Anka, the, the transition back to home when they work oftentimes within their communities, um, that their, the structure, you know, the debriefing process, the time between deployment to coming home in the military is, the entire structure is different. And I, I can't imagine what that could be like, especially on tougher days, on, on difficult shifts. I, I can't imagine. You know, one of the reasons we really wanted to have you on for this podcast is to also highlight your article for the Journal of Health Service Psychology, because you wrote an article that's specifically titled Providing Psychological Services to Firefighters. And you and I think a co-author, Dr. Tran, um, and you wrote about how firefighter culture can influence how we should deliver care or how we could deliver care. And I'm, I'm curious what we should, as health service psychologists, be keeping in mind 
when we're working with firefighters? That's a big question and such an important one. And uh, I'll do my best to answer it succinctly um, while trying. Sure, to sure. It is, I, that, is, that is a big open-ended question. So I appreciate you taking it on. Sure. Um, there's so many important issues at play. I think, first of all, it's important to know that few fire departments offer mental health services. And those departments are often in large urban areas. And this is in stark contrast to other high-risk occupational groups, such as military veterans and even law enforcement. And furthermore, a few psychology training programs offer specialized clinical training with first responder populations. So as I mentioned, this is a really understudied and underserved population, broadly speaking. And we're just beginning to understand how to most effectively serve firefighters um, in terms of psychological services. And there's a lot of work to be done. But, you know, one of the first issues to recognize is mental health stigma. And stigma in the fire service presents a significant barrier to treatment initiation, maintenance, um, follow through. And research has shown time and again that for firefighters, stigma related barriers to treatment as compared to like structural barriers or practical barriers like commute time or cost are much larger and more challenging to address in many ways. So firefighters often have negative perceptions of the treatment process and maybe less likely to believe that psychotherapy uh, works. So the bottom line is that shame and reputation concerns are bigger predictors of whether a firefighter will, will try to initiate treatment or maintain treatment than the practical barriers. But in addition to stigma, firefighters may present with multiple psychiatric and medical comorbidities. So, so they may come in and present with a complex clinical picture and we really have few evidence-based programs available that are specifically tailored to fire culture. And so providers, you know, working with the fire service should, you know, consider teletherapy options after hours or weekend care, um, linking with structured peer support, family involvement, like couples therapy. In other words, being flexible, both around their schedules, but also keeping in mind the stigma uh, and ways to address their needs, you know, while, while uh, paying attention to the role of mental health stigma. Um, and finally, you know, firefighters might find it difficult to relate to mental health professionals. And this can be addressed in a very transparent manner to val validate concerns about cultural differences. But, you know, I think for, for psychologists, for mental health professionals, really important to note that firefighters tend to be very good at emotional numbing and compartmentalizing difficult emotional situations or memories. And that is adaptive for them, given their high stress daily duties right. and their training to be present, activated, oriented to the tasks or the moment. Um, and they need to be good at compartmentalizing to do what they need to do, to do it well. However, as we know from decades of research, um, this may lead to some getting too good at compartmentalizing and uh -huh, not really uh -huh. turning that off when they're off duty. So the compartmentalizing at work may turn into avoidance around the clock. And as psychologists, we know that high levels of avoidance are generally not good. They're, they're not correlated with or predictive of mental wellness, but with 
with symptomatology. And so the more highly avoidant firefighters may become especially defensive or skeptical about the role of mental health in their life or about their fit with psychotherapy, um, which by definition calls for, for self-reflection and, and sitting with one's emotions and processing them. Right, right. And so this, this word that you've been mentioning a few times, this stigma of seeking care, you know, it makes me wonder how do firefighters find themselves in a psychotherapy office? How do they get there? What brings them in? How do they, you know, uh, basically overcome that barrier? That's, that's a really important question. I think it's an empirical question. So I can tell you what, what we know so far, uh, which is based on, on a little bit of research and a lot of, uh, you know, discussions with, with clinical providers who work either within the fire service or with, with firefighters. Um, and that is that, you know, well, first, you know, as I mentioned, uh, relationship issues, marital problems tend to be a big presenting complaint so that it's, they're coming in not necessarily because maybe they think they have an issue, but because someone really close to them who they care about says, you know, I, we have an issue or I think you need extra support, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it may be a, a, a family or relationship issue that's driving their their initial contact with treatment. It might be a department um, that that you know mandates treatment for things like alcohol use, anger at work, um, or you know it it may be that they access treatment for the first time through peer services. And a lot of departments are integrating peer support programs. Um, which is really great because a a firefighter may be more likely to make that first contact with a peer, another fellow firefighter that goes through a specialized training program than they would to call, you know, a a psychologist or another provider. And so um, peer support programs um, are another avenue. And, you know, in addition, I think we're, we're just starting to, we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg of figuring out how effective web-based or computerized interventions, teletherapy interventions might be Mm -hmm. um, in terms of breaking down some of those barriers. And they may go a long way in terms of offering services, referrals, or brief assessments, or you know, behavioral health temperature checks, so to speak, uh-huh. for firefighters, like a first step for someone maybe with more severe symptoms to recognize they may need more help, you know, they may be more likely to initiate that through, mm-hmm. you know, an app or a computerized intervention or a peer support program, um, if not through, you know, a, a more conventional means. What I'm taking from what you're sharing, Anka, is that in many ways, if we look towards our aspirations, we're part of a kind of a multi-pronged approach to helping this population. That, that it's not just psychologists, but it's, it's also about having peer groups. It's about having the support of that community too, within itself, not just having outsiders come in, but to, to have a shared process in that. And the other thing that really stood out to me or the word that was coming to my mind is the potential for significant trauma. 
significant trauma over the course of this work that they do and having to hold that in. And as you say, and I love how you said it, you know, that that compartmentalizing can be hugely adaptive an advantage while they're working to be able to hold that and then keep working. And at the same point that there's this trauma then, and what do we do with that afterwards? How do we proceed um, after the, the event that you needed to compartmentalize is done? Um, yeah, so Anka, I really, really appreciate you sharing your, your expertise, your experience in, in some of these um, partnerships and community building efforts too, because I think that that's an important part of what we do or could do um, with so many different populations that we think about working with or trying to improve um, their mental health and their well-being. I really, really appreciate your time as well. Before we go, I'm curious if there are any sort of final remarks or thoughts. Yeah, well, I just want to say thank you again for, for uh, inviting me to be here. And, you know, I think education about behavioral health in the fire service, so educating firefighters early and often, in my opinion, may be a protective factor ultimately. And that remains an empirical question, but, you know, um, really integrating mental health topics and issues into the day-to-day in the fire culture uh, has really stands a good chance of, of changing it gradually over time. Um, that strong organizational support and broadening that to include more conversations around behavioral health. Uh, than have been there historically. Right. And yeah, that sounds like the, the sort of ground up thinking, you know, how do we integrate from the, the very beginning to, to help when it's needed? Uh, and, and it reminds me of a, a podcast episode and listeners too, you should check out uh, if you get a little bit of an opportunity with Dr. Beth Darnell of Stanford's um, pain program. And, you know, there Beth was really, really emphasizing how important it is to, to be talking about psychological well-being and pain early with medical doctors, with patients, and how that can then change the treatment outcomes. So I, I, it really resonates for me as I hear you talking about that import, importance of integrating early on and how that might change the outcomes longer term. Thank you again, Anka. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, listeners can learn more about this topic by reading the article entitled Providing Psychological Services to Firefighters in the Journal of Health Service Psychology. I'm Dr. Samuel Lusgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. Mm -hmm.